this is the Sunday before the last Sunday of the green season. So next Sunday we'll celebrate uh, something called Christ the King, where the, uh, where the theme will be the centrality of Christ uh, as we understand it as Episcopalians. But today we have three readings that I want to preach on because they're about uh, not things that necessarily relate, but they're important. One is uh, God bringing uh, richness out of barrenness and out of uh, a belief in the, a sense of lack uh, in the story of Hannah. And in the reading from the Hebrews, the author is writing, I've told you this before, there may be something getting becoming wrong with me as I get older because the epistle to the Hebrews seems more understandable to me at any rate. So what I'm going to do is try to explain what the author's talking about in terms of this the perfect sacrifice of Christ and some other things in this reading which really have to do with the nature of Christian discipleship and what that means. And then finally in Mark's gospel we have some apocalyptic writing or speaking by Jesus uh, about destruction and all kinds of turmoil and difficulty. And um, Mark concludes this section with saying, but these are the birth pangs. And what does it mean? And I'm going to suggest that this reading has something to do with what these days they would call managing change. What does it mean when we think about managing change and the difficulties uh, involved in that sort of thing? So let's take the reading from 1 Samuel. This is not really a story, although it's, it's in a sense humanized by the story of Hannah who hasn't been able to have children and she has gone to the, the temple, not to the temple in Jerusalem, but to the, the shrine at Bethel and she's uh, talked there to the priest about this, that she's concerned about uh, the circumstances of her life. She's upset. Her husband loves her and supports her, but she's never been able to have children. And she comes and talks to the priest about it, and he sends her home and says, it's going to be okay, and uh, I understand that you have trusted in God and cooperated with God, and believe me that God is going to use you for his purposes, whatever the outcome. So we would read that initially about the fact that there's a woman who, who can't have a baby and she ultimately has a baby. And I've as a pastor wondered what utility that has to people uh, who are having these difficulties themselves. Because this really isn't about that in the ancient Near East. It's about something else. There's another point being driven home. But people in the helping professions have had to contend with the anguish and the realities of these things in a way that um, there are no easy answers to, you know. If we believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, we believe that God can do anything God wants to do, then God can uh, make people who can't have babies have babies. So when that happens, we can attribute it to God and say that God's the one who produced this outcome, right? Mm -hmm. Or we can say maybe that's not the place to look. And what's involved here is that um, God is working something else uh, out in this particular situation. 
Because this is about the birth of the prophet Samuel, who is going to be the one who finds and anoints King David and brings to Israel the monarchy. And while there's all kinds of controversies about whether there ought to be a monarchy or not, he does it. Prior to that, he will be at the shrine and he will discover over time we have a rather benign priest and so on. His name has gone completely out of my head. But he has allowed his sons and will allow his sons to take great liberties with their custody and stewardship over the shrine. And as a result of this, they're going to suffer for this kind of blasphemous behavior. And Samuel is the one who is going to point this out. Now, just to show you the liberty with which people can take the biblical text, I was raised as a Christian scientist. And the story of Samuel as a boy who was called by God in the night, remember? He says, Samuel, Samuel. So he gets up and he goes into the priest, he shakes him, and he said, you were calling me? And he said, no, go back to bed. So he goes to bed, hears the voice again, comes in, no, go back to bed. Hears the voice again, comes in, and finally the priest says to him, this time you say, Lord, here am I. Right? I'm at your service. Okay? What I'm about to tell you is going to make the ears in everyone in Israel tingle. God says. Well, guess what? In Christian science, Samuel was a type for Mary Baker Eddy, who is a little girl, claimed to have heard this voice. So what do you do with that? Samuel heard the voice, and the voice said to him, uh, this is bad stuff going on at this shrine, and I'm going to see to it that something is done about it, and there's going to be big trouble and plenty of it. So ultimately, the upshot of all this and Samuel's involvement in this is going to produce a change there. And then he will become a prophet, and he moves forward and goes and anoints one of Jesse's sons, who we talked about last week, establishing the line of King David. And one of his sons is named David, and he is now anointed as the king of Israel. So Hannah becomes the instrument of the purposes of God and of the corporate understanding of the destiny of Israel. So always remember when you read the biblical text, you're not reading about our individual circumstances only, and maybe not even mainly. We're reading about the corporate understanding of the people, of all of us, the destiny of the people of Israel, and how we understand what that might mean uh, in future. So that there's always this sort of reciprocity between our own interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states, our own spiritual yearning, our own desire to know God's purposes, our wish that God would do for us what we want, 
And in the biblical text, what we're talking about is that God does for the people what is the fulfillment of his purposes through us. So that we begin to see that there actually is some relationship between our subjective relationship with reality and what we seek and want and find useful and what God's purposes are for everybody else. We line up a little bit better with both corporate and personal. This is very hard to talk about in our age because all of us are driven by our interior life and believe that that is central to things. The triumph of the autonomous self is perhaps the biggest reality that we face in post-modernity. You know, I define what's real and what's important. And so this is a biblical text about what happens is the result of what God's purposes are. And they may not directly connect only to, well, if you can't have children, you get to have them if you pray hard enough or yearn enough or hope enough. But somehow you learn out of the midst of that to uh, align your life with God. There's things that happen. I've always said this, we've heard this before, of course, that people who go through great adversity and difficulty and maybe need to do some reinterpretation of their internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states come to a clearer picture of what God's purposes are for them. And this is a reading about that. In Hebrews, uh, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, the, the epistle to the Hebrews is an extended argument about what was accomplished by Jesus, both in his earthly ministry and in his propitiatory death and resurrection. So today he's talking about Christ as the priest that now has effected the perfect sacrifice and within the thought world of Jewish people and Jewish Christians, they think about the priest at the temple who performs sacrifices that are done in their view to please God and never has any priest been able to do this perfectly. It has never happened so that it will never have to happen again. But through Jesus, it's happened and it doesn't have to happen again. But in the course of this happening, the life and work of Jesus prior to this begins to give people the idea that he is the template that we lay over our own personal spiritual development and maturity. The temp Jesus looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And as a result of that, this seeking of perfection becomes how then do we respond to the divine initiative, to this sacrifice that has been perfectly affected, what do we do in response to that? And the writer is talking about there needs to be some form of a response to become a disciple, a follower on the way, a student. Some people have said that discipleship means witnessing to an intentional faith as modeled in the baptismal covenant. In our prayer book on page 304, keeping the Sabbath, honoring the tithe as the biblical standard of faithful financial giving to the church, using her or his spiritual gifts in the work of the upbuilding of the church, and reaching out to others with the love of Christ. So in some way, as you think about Jesus as the template, 
his perfect offering is something that you and I seek to do in our daily living. There's a, there's a great Anglican divine who lived in the 17th century named Jeremy Taylor. And Jeremy Taylor wrote a book called Holy Living. And it was about seeking this perfection. I'm not talking about the kind of seeking of perfection that makes you sick or crazy. But a real desire to live into a mature understanding of God's purposes for you. I need to say this from time to time. In Matthew's Gospel, there's the famous line that Jesus says to uh, his disciples, You must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So when you read it in the Greek text, it's, it really says, You must be mature, even as your Father in heaven is mature. Teleios. I can get mature better than perfect. I don't know about you. That seems a little easier reach, you know. And sometimes when people work for perfection, it becomes difficult. So this is about understanding that perfection in that sense and being a disciple. So the gospel. Jesus is speaking in very apocalyptic language. The disciples come up to him and say, look at these stones here, the temple, they're so big. And he said, the time is going to come where there won't be one on top of the other. The whole thing is going to come down. It's all going to be destroyed. There's going to be complete confusion and chaos. We won't have any idea what to do. There'll be wars, rumors of wars. You've heard all these things in the past. It's just going to be completely confusing. Some people will claim to have the answer, and they don't. It's going to be very difficult. So then he takes some of the uh, disciples take him aside and talk to him and he speaks again about this apocalyptic occurrence. So this is where you have to be a little bit of a student of the Bible to make any sense out of this at all. Um, Mark's gospel is the earliest of the gospels and it was written bet any time between 65 and 75 AD, probably closer to 75. The Roman imperial army came into Jerusalem in 68 AD and they burned the city down and destroyed the temple. It was like the end of the world. So Jesus predicts this in his saying to the disciples and the community out of which Mark's gospel emerged experienced it in reality. For them, it was the end of the world. How do we make sense out of this? It destroyed sacrificing Judaism as it was known. And we see now the beginning of what has evolved to this day, something that's called by some rabbinic Judaism, which is what the Judaism is that you and I know. The rabbis carrying on the tradition, usually generally through the Pharisees, and so on. And so they're in complete turmoil. They don't know how to make sense out of all of this. And so they're going to have to now do what I said earlier, manage some change, because some other things are happening. There is the call to preach the gospel to the nations, the Gentiles. 
and this process is occurring in the midst of all of this, and many of the Gentiles find this message compelling and begin now to come in. And so those who heretofore had been pious practicing Jews now have to contend with Gentiles who have not kept the law, who have not been circumcised, who are generally considered those people, the Gentiles, not our people. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds a little familiar to me. You know, what maybe goes around comes around. So here we are, and we're trying to make sense out of all of this. And Jesus is speaking to them about the necessity of managing change, or at least being perceptive enough to know that there are many panaceas and cures and people who are going to come in and tell them what the real answer is and how they're supposed to do this kind of thing. But if he's offering any comfort is these are the birth pangs. Now what we know historically is as, the, as we move forward out of the New Testament period, we begin to see an, a, a, a group of people who were demoralized, who were in the minority, who were not even considered as important, begin now to emerge as having a voice and importance, producing change and conflict within the community out of which they emerged. So this means that within Judaism, synagogues are going to have people in them who believe in the Messiahship of Jesus, they're going to start to read from their sacred books, and in some synagogues, they're going to read some of the new books that are Gospels or letters of Paul, and they're going to read them in the synagogue liturgy. And there are going to be others who say these books cannot be read. They cannot be read here. They are speaking of Jesus as the Messiah. He is not the Messiah. We do not hold that he is the Messiah. Those who read those readings are going to say, well, we've got our own synagogues here and we're just going to begin to move forward. And some kind of conversation needs to be had about what constitutes the books of the Bible. Right? So it is the emergence of Christianity that produce, even within Judaism, the desire to codify and make more precise just exactly what it is that we say we believe or what we're going to call our sacred literature. And so some are going to say what the sacred literature is are all of the books that are written in Hebrew only. Nothing in Greek, not just the stuff that we call the New Testament, but other Greek books that, we, that are read in some parts of the Jewish world, in the diaspora, we're not counting those. And we're going to count some, in some places, we're going to count all the Hebrew writing and the Greek writing, and now the new Greek writing, which is the New Testament. And so we begin to see the emergence of some form of the birth pangs. My own personal, because of my, you know, being gone to seminary and everything, I do think it's true to say that the birth pangs are maybe Mark's interpretation of the reality that they're living in. And he's describing what he understands is going on in his community. That this is exactly what's happening. And so rather than be closed-minded about those things, we need to be open to what it's going to show us.
So managing change is something that is, you know, important to do. I mean, many of us find managing change difficult at every possible level, you know. They, some have said the seven last words of Episcopalians are, we've never done it that way before. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I think it points to everything that we, we think about in those ways. Remember that God, my, the dean of my seminary, when I first went there, said, God labors to bring good out of every situation that is difficult or where there is perceived lack. And people of faith can sharpen their vision and focus to begin to see that that is true as they seek to be intentional, to be disciples, to follow the Lord on the way, and to give thanks that in the midst of all the challenges and the managing of change, God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And that enormous free gift can make anything possible. Amen.